Chapter Eleven of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Eleven. Ben Omar and his clerk had kept the appointment. They had taken very good care not to miss it. For some days they had been at Suez, and the impatience with which they had expected Antifer may be guessed. At a sign from Antifer, neither Jewel nor Tregamine took the slightest notice of them. The three continued their conversation as if nothing could distract their attention. Ben Omar came forward in the obsequious attitude which was customary with him. They seemed to be unconscious of his presence. At last, sir, he ventured to say in the most amiable tone he could manage. Captain Antifer turned his head, looked at him, and positively did not seem to recognize him. Sir, it is I. It is I, the notary repeated as he bowed. Who, you? And this, as much to say, whatever can this escape from a mummy box want with me? But it is I, Ben Omar, notary of Alexandria. Do you not recollect? Do we know this gentleman? asked Antifer, winking at his companions, as he shifted the pebble from his right cheek to his left. I think I do, said Tregamain, taking pity on the notary's embarrassment. It is Mr. Ben Omar. We once had the pleasure of meeting. So it is, so it is, replied Antifer, as if he had a distant recollection of him, a very distant recollection. I remember Ben Omar. Ben Omar. That is it. Ah, well, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? But I've been waiting for you, Mr. Antifer. Waiting for me? Certainly. Have you forgotten? The appointment for us to meet at Suez? Appointment? And what for? asked Antifer, in such a tone of surprise that the notary was completely taken aback. What for? Why, the will of Kamalik Pasha. The millions he left you. The island. You mean to say my island, I believe. Yes, your island. I see you are beginning to remember. And as the will imposed on me the true obligation of... I understand, Mr. Ben Omar. Good morning. Good morning. And without another word, he shrugged his shoulders as an intimation for Jewel and the bargeman to follow him. But as they were going away from the station, the notary stopped them. Where are you going to stay at Suez? he asked. In some hotel, I suppose, replied Antifer. Will the hotel suit you or my clerk and I have put up? Either that one or another. It does not matter. For the forty-eight hours we have to stay here. Forty-eight hours? asked Ben Omar, in a tone of evident uneasiness. Have you not reached the end of your voyage? Not the least in the world, replied Antifer. We have got another sea passage. A sea passage? exclaimed the notary, turning as pale as if a ship's deck were oscillating beneath his feet. A sea passage, which, if you please, we will take on board the Oxus, which runs to Bombay. Bombay! And which starts from Suez the day after tomorrow. I advise you to take your passage in her, as your company is forced upon us. Where, then, is the island? asked the notary, with a gesture of despair. It is where it is, Mr. Ben Omar. And therefore Antifer, followed by Jewel and Tregamain, walked into the nearest hotel, where their luggage, which was not extensive, was soon brought to them. A minute afterwards Ben Omar had rejoined Nazim, and an observer could not fail to have noticed that the so-called clerk gave him anything but a respectful welcome. Ah, if it had not been for that one percent of those millions, and for the fear with which Suluk inspired him, how gladly he would have been quit of this legatee. 
and this will, and this island, in search of which he was betrotted over land and sea. Antifer was told that Suez was formerly called Suez by the Arabs, and Cleopatris by the Egyptians. But his only reply was, as far as I'm concerned, it makes no difference. It hardly occurred to this impatient personage to visit the few mosques, old buildings without anything special about them, two or three places, the most curious of which was the grain market, or to look at the house facing the sea where General Bonaparte lodged. But Jewel thought that the two days could not be better spent than exploring the town of 15,000 inhabitants, the irregular wall of which is so miserably kept up. He and Tregomain spent their time in wandering about the streets and lanes, and exploring the roadstead, where five hundred ships can find good anchorage in from eight to ten fathoms, well sheltered from the north-northwest winds, which prevail all the year round. Suez had a certain amount of overseas trade, even before the canal was projected, thanks to the railway running to Cairo and Alexandria. By its position at the end of the gulf which bears its name, it commands the Red Sea and although its growth may be slow, its future is assured. But this did not trouble Captain Antifer. While his two companions went cruising about the town, he hardly left the superb beach, which had been transformed into a promenade. He knew he was watched, it is true. Sometimes it was Nazim, sometimes it was Ben Omar, who never lost sight of him while keeping at a distance. He pretended to take no notice of this. Taking his ease on a seat, absorbed, Meditative, he gazed at the horizon out in the Red Sea. And occasionally, so much was he possessed with the one fixed idea, he would fancy he saw the island, his island, emerge from the mist of the south, by an effect of mirage which is frequently produced on the extremities of these sandy beaches, a marvelous phenomenon by which the eye is always deceived. On the morning of the 11th of March, the mail steamer, Oxus, had finished its preparations for departure and taken in the coal necessary for the voyage across the Indian Ocean, and the stoppages at the regular ports. We need not be surprised to find that Antifer, Tregomaine, and Jewel were on board at daybreak, and that Ben Omar and Saouk had taken passage with them. The large steamer was really a cargo boat, but she had accommodations for a few passengers, most of them bound to Bombay, some of them to Aden and Muscat. The Oxus was underway at eleven o'clock. A fresh breeze was blowing from the north-northwest, with a tendency to work round to the westward. As the voyage would last a fortnight, owing to the numerous stoppages, Jewel had secured a cabin with three berths, which could be arranged either for the day's siesta or the night's repose. Sawuk and Ben Omar occupied another cabin, from which the notary would probably make but few and short appearances. Antifer, determined to have as little intercourse as possible with them, had begun by saying to the unfortunate notary, with the delicacy of a sea-bear which characterized him. Mr. Ben Omar, we have to travel together, it is true, but let us keep our places. I will go my way, and you will go yours. It will be enough for you to be present to witness my taking possession. When the matter is over, I hope we shall have the pleasure of never meeting again, either in this world or the next. As long as the Oxus was running down the gulf, sheltered by the heights of the Isthmus, the navigation was as tranquil as if it was on the surface of a lake. But when they got out into the Red Sea, the fresh breezes from the plains of Arabia gave her a roughish reception. The consequence was a good deal of heavy rolling, which many of the passengers found discomforting. Nazim did not mind it much. Neither did Antifer, nor his nephew, nor Tregomaine, freshwater sailor though he might be. But the notary's condition it is impossible to describe. He never appeared either on deck or in a saloon, 
or in the dining room. In the depths of his cabin, his groans were heard throughout the voyage. Better for him if he could have traveled as a mummy. The worthy bargeman, taking pity on the poor fellow, visited him several times, as might be expected from his good nature. When he tried to get Antifer to sympathize with him, all he received was a shrug of the shoulders. Antifer could never forgive Ben Omar for having attempted to steal his latitude. Well, bargeman, he would say, Mr. Omar is empty, eh? Almost. My compliments. My friend, will you not go and see him, if it were only once? Yes, Marchman, yes. I will go when there is nothing left of him but his skin. What could be said to a man who answered like that, with a burst of laughter at his own wit? But if Antifer suffered no annoyance from the notary during his voyage, his clerk Nazim was several times the cause of his most justifiable irritation. It was not that Nazim thrust his presence on him. No. Besides, what could he do? For as he did not speak the same language, conversation was impossible. But the so-called clerk was always there, keeping close watch on Antifer, as if he had received orders to do so from his master. Great would have been Antifer's delight as pitching him overboard, supposing that the Egyptian had been the man to submit to such treatment. The descent of the Red Sea was anything but pleasant, although it was not made during the intolerable heat of the summer. Then it is that the care of the boilers can only be entrusted to Arab stokers, for they alone will not cook where eggs will cook in a few minutes. On the 15th of March, the Oxus was running through the narrowest portions of the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb, leaving Perim on the left, and Abak on the African coast, on the right. The steamer entered the Gulf of Aden, and headed for the port of that name, where several of her passengers were to be landed. Aden, yet another key of the Red Sea, hanging from the belt of Great Britain, that good housekeeper always at work. With the Isle of Perim, of which she has made another Gibraltar, she holds the entrance of this corridor, 1,800 miles long, opening out into the Indian Ocean. The port of Aden may be partially silted up, but it at least possesses a vast and commodious anchorage to the east, and in the west a harbor where quite a fleet might find shelter. The English had been installed there since 1823. The town itself, which was a flourishing one in the 11th and 12th centuries, was evidently designed as the emporium of commerce with the furthest east. Captain Antifer did not think it worth while to go ashore, but spent the time railing at the delay, one of the most serious inconveniences of which was to permit the notary to appear on deck. But in what a state! He had hardly enough strength enough to drag himself along. "'Eh? Mr. Ben Omar, is that you?' asked Antifer, ironically. "'Really, I should never have recognized you. You will never get to the end of the voyage. If I were in your place, I should remain at Aden.' I should like to, replied the notary, in a voice that was hardly above a whisper. A few days might pull me round, and if you could manage to wait for the next steamer. I am sorry, Mr. Ben Omar. I am in such a hurry to pour into your hands the splendid commission that is to come to you, that I cannot possibly stop on the way. Is it much farther? More than farther, answered Antifer, sweeping his hand round so as to indicate a curve of enormous diameter. And thereupon Ben Omar regained his cabin, dragging himself along like a lobster and having derived but little comfort from this brief conversation. The following afternoon the Oxus was off again, and found the Indian Amphitrite anything but kind. The goddess was ill-tempered, capricious, nervous as those on board could testify. Better not seek to know what happened in Ben Omar's cabin. 
He might have been brought up on deck in a cloth and dropped into the bosom of the above-mentioned goddess with a round shot at his feet, and he would not have the strength to protest against a funeral ceremony. The bad weather lasted until the third day, when the wind hauled to the northeastward, so as to bring the steamer under the shelter of the coast of Hadramaut. Sayok might stand the ups and downs of the voyage without being inconvenienced, but if his body did not suffer, his mind could not help doing so. To be at the mercy of this abdominal Frenchman, to be unable to get out of him the mystery of this island, to be compelled to follow him to—to where? To Muscat? To Surat? To Bombay? At all of which the Oxus was to call. Would they have to land at Muscat and cross the Strait of Ormuz? Was it on one of the hundreds of islands in the Persian Gulf that Kamalik had buried his treasure? This ignorance, this uncertainty, kept Sayok in a state of perpetual exasperation. He would have dragged the secret from Antifer's very vitals, if he could. Often would he catch a few words exchanged between Antifer and his companions. As he was supposed not to know French, there was no reason for their being careful when he was by. But it had all ended in nothing. The pretended clerk was justly regarded with suspicion, even with aversion. It was with repulsion that he inspired them, and the instinctive, unreasonable sentiment was felt as much by his companions as by Antifer himself. When Saouk came near them, they moved away, and this he noticed only too well. On the 19th of March, the Oxus stopped for twelve hours at Brabat, on the Arab coast. From this point, she continued along the coast of Oman so as to get up to Muscat. Two days afterwards, she had doubled Cape Raz el Had. Twenty-four hours later, she had reached the capital of the Sultanate. Captain Antifer seemed to be nearing the end of his voyage. And it was time. The nearer he drew toward his goal, the more nervous, the more unsociable he became. All his life was centered in this island, this mine of gold and diamonds which belonged to him. To him it was an Ali Baba's cave which had been transferred to him by law in the very country of the Arabian Nights, whither Kamalik Pasha's fancy had led him. Do you know, said he one day to his companions, that if the fortune of this worthy Egyptian had been ingots of gold, I should have had a good deal of trouble in getting it to St. Malo? So I should think, said Jewel. But, returned Tregomain, if we filled our bags, our pockets, and our hat case. There's a bargeman's notion for you. He fancies he can put a million in his pocket. I fancy, my friend, but you have never seen a million in gold? Never, not even in a dream. Do you know what it weighs? I know nothing about it. Well, I do, for I've had the curiosity to calculate. Tell us. An ingot of gold with a million would weigh about 17,775 pounds avoirdupois, and four millions would consequently weigh over 71,000 pounds. Ah, said the bargeman, you must have made it too much. Do you know how many men it would take to carry those four millions? How many? Why, 323. And as we are but three, you can see what our embarrassment would be when we reach my island. Fortunately, my treasure is chiefly composed of diamonds and precious stones. Uncle is right, said Jewel. And I may add, said Dragomine, that this excellent Pasha could not have arranged matters more conveniently. Oh, these diamonds, exclaimed Antifer, these diamonds are easily sold among the Paris and London jewelers. What a sale, my friends, what a sale. Not all, though, not all. You will only sell a part of them? Yes, bargeman, yes, replied Antifer, his face convulsed, his eyes glowing like fire. 
Yes, and first I will keep one for myself, a diamond worth forty or fifty thousand pounds, say, and I will wear it in my shirt. In your shirt, friend, said Trigamane. You will be simply dazzling. No one will be able to look you in the face. And Anogi shall have another, added Antifer. That is a little gem to make her pretty. No prettier than she is now, Jewel hastened to remark. Quite so, quite so. And there shall be a third diamond for my sister. Ah, good Nanan, said Tregomain. Do you want somebody to come and propose for her? Antifer shrugged his shoulders. There shall be a fourth diamond for you, Jewel. A fine stone you can wear as a pin. Thank you, uncle. And you shall have a fifth old man. Me? They had to be put on the figurehead of the Charmante Amelie. No, Bargeman, on your finger. A ring. A signet ring. A diamond on my great red hands. That would suit me as well as socks would a Franciscan, replied the bargeman, extending an enormous hand much more suited to haul the hawser than to display diamond rings. Never mind. It is not impossible that you might find some woman who would. Whom would you suggest? There's a fine fat widow who keeps a grocer's shop at St. Servan. Grocer! Grocer! exclaimed Antifer. What a figure your grocer would make in our family when Enogate had married her prince and Jewel his princess. There the conversation ended, and the young captain would not stifle a sigh at the thought that his uncle still encouraged these absurd dreams. What would bring him back to sanity if misfortune, yes, misfortune, willed it that he should become possessed of these millions of the island? Positively he will go out of his mind if these last much longer, said Tregomain to Jewel when they were alone. I'm afraid so, said Jewel, looking at his uncle, who was talking to himself. Two days afterwards, the oxes arrived at Muscat, and three sailors extracted Ben Omar from the depths of this cabin. But in what a state! He was reduced to a skeleton, or rather to a mummy, for the skin still hung on the bones of the unfortunate notary. End of chapter 11